0: Hey, listeners, I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with film, theater, and television casting director Pat Goodwin. Pat is a casting director at the Telsey office based in New York City. Recent Broadway casting credits include Tina, The Tina Turner Musical, The Cher Show, Waitress, Kinky Boots, SpongeBob SquarePants, Finding Neverland, Chaplin, and Annie. Film credits include The Greatest Showman and Sex and the City 1 and 2. He was recently nominated for an Emmy Award for Excellence in Casting for the NBC television production of Jesus Christ Superstar Live in Concert and has won several Ardios Awards for Excellence in Casting. Upcoming casting projects include The Wanderer, Fly, Row, and the musical stage adaptation of The Notebook, by Ingrid Michaelson and Becca Brunzetter, Listeners, we talk all about the Telsey office, which is one of, if not the biggest casting office in New York City. We talk about how his office functions, like which casting directors work on different projects, it's stuff I've always wanted to know, and how working across all three mediums of television, film, and theater helps them break barriers and bring theater actors on TV and TV actors to theater. We break down the process of casting a big new Broadway musical like Waitress or SpongeBob. We talk about how it starts, the conversations surrounding offers for bigger names for the leads, and Pat's creative process, like making lists of actors to bring in for the creative team and producers. Pat really lays down the mindset and some concrete steps to follow and forge a career in this business. I think we all can overthink and overcomplicate it sometimes. I know that I do, just ask my boyfriend. But that's why we have the podcast, to hear from casting directors like Pat, to reframe our. priorities, and remember what is actually important and worth spending our time and energy and money doing. Listeners, I'm just so thrilled to have had this conversation with Pat and to get to know Pat and even more thrilled to share it with you all today. And again, you've heard me say this, but if you like what you hear, please just take a second to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes like a few seconds and helps us out so much. All right, listeners, without further ado, here is my conversation with Broadway television and film casting director at the Telsey office, Pat Goodwin. Pat, thank you so much for being game and having a chat with me over Squadcast. It's so different these days. I wish we were doing this in
1: person, but alas, here we are. I know. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, for sure. I love, I love chatting with casting directors. It was like really the real mission of wanting to start this podcast. I just think that there's so much to say. I think that casting directors are really the liaison in the middle of our business between the talent, the agents, producers, directors. You know, you really just have the scope of everything that's going on. And you work at a very large popular office that many people know about in this city, T- um, Telsey. So sorry, my dog is making a cameo in the background right there. Mine will so. too. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, sweet, sweet. Because you're a bigger office and you have multiple, you know, full casting directors within one umbrella of the company. Talk to me about when you get a new project, or a producer comes your way and wants to hire you to cast a Broadway play, or a movie, or um, you know, just kind of a new project. Maybe it's a different relationship than anyone kind of has but how do you decide which casting director is gonna take the lead on that project? Is it just, you know, Bernie just kind of saying, hey, I think you'd be great, or is it that, you know, you maybe go and solicit work and then it's your project? Or I'm just kind of curious, like how how you all kind of divide up responsibilities, because it seems like you do it very well and everyone kind of has their own niche project, you know, niche of what they do. But I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Of course. It's a lot of different factors at play. I think it is existing relationships. It's availability, depending on what your current workload is. It's being forward about what you want to work on. And it's, in a lot of ways, uh, your proficiency in a specific medium. Uh, as everybody has learned throughout the past few years, you know, there's a lot of things you need to know logistically and technologically to be a non-camera casting director. And there's a lot of specific things you need to know about being a theater casting director. Those aren't necessarily things that you can just step into a room and do unless you've had some experience or unless you've tag teamed with somebody that's very proficient at it. So there's so many different elements that play with that. But what I do love about my office and the people I work with is there's never any problem with speaking up if there is something that you might not be well-versed on that you want to learn more about. I started Uh, in 2006 as, you know, Bernie's assistant. And from there, I I never really had an idea of where I was supposed to go, but I knew that if I spoke up as I transitioned into a casting track, I would be able to work on things that I wanted with a good educator hand in hand to teach me how to do it along the way. And so I started in the theater mostly doing musicals uh, and the occasional straight play. But as time went on, you know, there was a point in time in 2007, 2008, right after I started where we needed an assistant to work on the Sex and the City films. And I said, I don't know about TV casting or any on-camera casting at all, but I would love to learn. And so it was trial by fire, you know, just being thrown in with Tiffany and Bernie and learning how to do that. But over time, that's how you become more confident and more able to work in those mediums. And from there builds relationships with people that sustain. And and if you do have a good working relationship with the creative team, a director, a producer, a studio, they will come back to you and, and think of you when there's new projects to work on. But for the most part, it is a collective effort of just constantly communicating about availability, interest, knowing that it's okay for people to swap up projects once in a while. And it's something that I think you can't be too rigid about when you have an office that's a little larger in size like mine, because then you'll get stuck doing one thing that you might not necessarily be happy with.
0: Right. And it also seems to me like I'm just imagining, but there's probably a lot of cross pollination because there's so many different projects and so many different casting directors. You know, there may be somebody in your office maybe just knows a type of actor or is familiar with. You know, so it's like, oh, do you know anyone that would be right for this, or do you know that that collaboration? I imagine is a is a benefit of working with many different casting directors. Oh,
1: absolutely, and that's what I miss so much about being in person is I could run over to Destiny's desk and she would give me 20 ideas people I might not have known about. And then I can go right over to Karen's desk, and she would do the same, and Adam. And you know, that's the thing that I miss about being in person, because the proximity of working in the same office space together makes it easy. But thankfully, we haven't lost that over the Zoom world. We're still doing that with the few projects that we are fortunate enough to still be working on. And I, I think, to use your term of cross-pollination, one of the biggest goals that I have in, in the different mediums I work on is I want to break down those barriers of there's no such thing as just a musical theater actor. It's an actor who may not have had a chance on camera. There's no such thing as just an on-camera actor. Mm -hmm. They might be a singer but might not have the confidence to do a musical because no one's ever asked them to. So I am hoping as, as the mediums are sort of shifting within the industry themselves in a lot of different ways that that is a barrier that our office at least tries to break down because it's not fair for so many actors who just don't have access because they've never had the experience of one thing that they haven't done before.
0: Right. And I think what's really cool about your office too, is that you do so much musical theater, straight plays, television, film. So you can bring those theater actors that maybe you would never have auditioned for a big feature before and bring them in because you know them and vice versa, which is cool that I yeah. see on projects that your office casts is you're bringing like a TV actor to do maybe kind of an edgy, you know, off-Broadway play, but then you're bringing, you know, sometimes you're watching a film and all of a sudden this awesome Broadway actor, you know, um, shows up and it's it's just, it's a fun little Easter egg for, for people in the business. It is,
1: it is. And it makes us feel good to give them an opportunity like that.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I'm just so curious about just kind of going on this journey in my head. I was, you know, thinking about what I wanted to chat about today, but you have worked on some pretty incredible, you know, new musicals, stuff like Waitress and uh, SpongeBob and Finding Neverland. And, you know, I guess kind of these things, I guess the ones I just mentioned have like slightly been based on things, but they were original, you know, they were musicals that were written, you know, specifically for the stage. I'm just wondering if you can take us through that kind of like, in our abbreviated time we have, that whole process of like, you know, take like Waitress or Finding Neverland or something, for example, and say, okay, when you got hired for that project, kind of what was the first thing that happened? You know, do you start to have conversations with, you know, the director, like i.e. Tina Landau or Diane Paulus, you know, and the producers and you kind of find you know those early, what are those early conversations like you know I would be naive to say that I know that you know there are just offers that maybe you just start want to sending out for some bigger names and then kind of talk about maybe that uh, those initial conversations into then like how you start building your lists of actors and how you think about building your list of actors for something like a new Broadway musical something that's going to be you know kind of a pretty big thing
1: sure it's it's always fascinating to see when the casting director is brought into the conversation for the first time because it's different depending on who's involved depending on the level of development they're in but for newer musicals uh that are being built from the ground up thankfully we are often asked very early on to at least be a fly in the wall in the conversation on the creative conversation of how we are going to build this community and we're going to populate this cast cool uh and i always think about The waitress example is so great to me because it was the kind of thing where very early on, before I think certain creative other creative team members were hired, we were asked to listen to demos, to have conversations with the producer about what it meant to put this musical together, to to speak with Diane Paulus about her vision of what she saw happening in the musical. And from there, getting to, work with Jesse and Sarah and Lauren to really create the entire pie, as they always put it, it was really interesting because, and I think I have to give so much of that credit to Sarah herself. She was so into the casting process that she wanted to be involved and similarly wanted us to be involved in those phases. And it let us have a little bit more of a chance to paint the canvas with them Mm -hmm. because we we were creating lists for that project from the very first reading. I think mm-hmm. the first informal table read in someone's living room we were giving them ideas of who was Becky, you know, who was Pommer, who was Earl, who were these people going to be and how were we going to build a community. And and I think that mm-hmm. that always stuck out to me in that project is that it was about building not just a story that was beautifully told through the music, but how are we going to build this community together? And it was it was something I was so grateful for to be able to see that from the first reading to the second reading, to the lab, to the second lab, to ART, to the lab that happened in between ART and Broadway, to Broadway, and then to replace it on Broadway. All of that is a different part of the story and a different process of casting that that I am so grateful for because it doesn't really happen that organically and comfortably. A lot of times you are shot out of a can in the second a casting director's brought on and then you're just expected to run with it and, and not necessarily have the conversations of why, but just get mm. right into the work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I mean, that makes so much sense. And I love that word community. I mean, specifically, well, with every show, you know, what does the world look like? What does the world feel like? And, you know, who are those names that are, you know, that, you know, that, that, you know, makes sense for that. So, okay. So you kind of get a feel for what the world is like and you understand, you know, you've talked to Sarah, you're talking to, you know, the composers and the creators and everything. And then how do you start, you know, I guess such an important part of the podcast is talking about the reality of what actually happens, you know, not kind of the rose colored glasses or anything. So, you know, you do start I mean this is a question do you start just sending out offers for the leads in in Broadway musicals right away just to see if you can get someone attached or for musicals are you like it's such an intense skill set you need to have even for some of these bigger names are you still you know maybe you're bringing them in for auditions or a meeting or you know work session or or kind of how does that work maybe for the leads um specifically
1: yeah at the end of the day you have to be able to deliver the material and in the case of waitress that is hard material to sing and to act and you have to do that fully eight times a week no questions asked or you're not going to even be considered for it right so whether you're on a list of offer type people or whether you're auditioning for the role that's the bottom line and yes like i'm not going to lie about it of course we we are always put in uh in a position in our very early conversations together collectively, that they want to consider some starrier names that might have marquee value to help sell tickets that could also do the work. Mm-hmm. And and those lists are often pretty short when you're narrowing down not just the specifics of the role that's needed, but the skill set of of what you need. In Waitress, I remember our orig- the original list that I had put together for Dr. Pometer was so long. I had so many different ideas I was going in. And then I heard the demo and I realized, okay, well, that's going to knock a lot of people off that don't sing like that first. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, you have this beautiful Jason Mraz type voice on a demo that's indicating what this should sound like and how it should feel. And you already know so many of those people just don't have that skill set, And then from there, you go to the next part of who's going to have the chemistry with these people. And that offer list sometimes whittles down. I think it's it's very well known that we all sort of start in a conversation of are there people we want to explore that we already know well that we think could do this that could also sell tickets and that could also bring some buzz about the show. That's that's something that has understandably always happened, but it's about the balance of that. You don't, I don't think it's really prudent in a lot of situations to populate an entire show with all celebrities that you're overpaying and then your overhead is insane. That's obviously more of a mm. producerial thing. But when you're looking at it from a casting perspective too, it is about balancing with true and tried theater performers that can hold their own on stage and really sometimes outshine those people who are of higher you know, celebrity value. But at the end of the day, it's not about this versus that in the sense of, of celebrity. It's about, are you still able to do the work that's required for this? And in mm. the case of Waitress, it was so cut and dry for us that the music was so challenging and so specific and the sound they wanted was so specific Mm -hmm. that it made it very easy not to have to come in with a laundry list and then make a ton of offers. That just wasn't what happened.
0: Yeah, I mean, for that show specifically, which I loved, like you need to be a fantastic actor. You need to be a fantastic singer, but you also need to have that vibe of that small town. So it does sound like a very specific, narrow process that ends up
1: happening. And a lot of times, and I'm sure you've, talked about this with others on this podcast who are casting directors, a lot of times if people aren't sure, they will offer a reading or a workshop to somebody as a sort of trial phase to see if they are in, they feel like they can do it and if the creative team feels like they can do it. Mm. That The times when somebody's offered the whole shebang, of course, and they develop it from the get-go and they know that's going to be the next two years of their life, but more often than not, there are people who are offered the development phase so that they have the comfort of growing within the show and also have the comfort of saying, you know what, maybe this isn't for me and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's something that gets lost along the way is people think that there isn't necessarily a middle phase where we're making sure people have the comfort to say that it's not for them if it's not for them. And if the creative team feels like it's not for them, then they can say it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you never kind of hear that that side of the story. So that's that's an interesting perspective. So I'm interested in your creative process a little bit as a casting director. So, you know, my next question is like, okay, so for a Broadway musical, new, before you're doing replacements, how many actors are you bringing in for the creative team or maybe even pre-screening before you bring in for the creative team? You know, just for a given role, like how many people maybe are you bringing in? Is it people you already know really well, or maybe you're pre-screening some people you don't know really well? You know, maybe you're getting some input from another casting director in your office. Maybe an agent is picking up the phone and say, hey, Pat, I really think you should see this person. Maybe talk about like how all of that stuff narrows down into your list of X amount of people you're going to bring in for you know, Diane Paulus and Sarah Bareilles.
1: Right, it's it's everything you just said, but in different situations, depending on what that creative team wants. That's right, really right. what it is. I know, I know, I know. And, you know, one of the people who I will drop any, I've said this on every podcast I've, I've spoken with in my life, one of the people who I will drop anything to do at any moment is Tina Landau. And the reason for that is her collaborative process in the audition room is so incredibly kind and respectful and and frankly long she is not only encouraging me to start pre-screens without her she expects it and she wants to be involved very early on in the process despite that and is always willing to carve out time to see people and to spend real time with people in a room and direct them mm-hmm. and make them feel like they belong and make them feel like the the time that they are giving us in the room is a gift to us and is, as well as a you know an opportunity for them And I think when you have that uh, encouragement to really spend time on that process before a director even comes in the room and starts seeing people, it only does us so much good because then we're meet, We're having the opportunity to meet people we may not have had in a rushed process. I may be able to take that call from an agent who pushed somebody and say, you know what, I actually do have three or four more time slots I can spare because I have more time. Let's try them. I'd love to get to know them. And that's a, a built-in opportunity for me to do that. Uh, that's the rarity. That is the rarity that you have that um, that luxury of time because so much of the time, especially if it's a Broadway show where they have a theater that is announced late and they need to get started on equity calls and all that stuff, you don't necessarily have that luxury. Mm-hmm. But I but I think if you're given the opportunity to, to take two steps backwards in that process before you shoot yourself out of a cannon, you're only doing yourself a disservice if you're not trying to spend every second meeting new people in addition to bringing in the people that you know are gonna make you proud and do well. Uh, and I think that is something during the pandemic that Thankfully we've hung on to and self-taping as much as it's a pain in the ass for actors and it's been such a 180 from what we're used to in terms of human contact in a room it has still offered us the opportunity to continue to meet people that we didn't know before.
0: Yeah. Yeah, let's let's maybe use that as a good segue to talk about self-tapes a little bit. It would be, you know, hard not to because it is what we are all doing right now more than ever and I think we've all kind of the actors my friends we talk to everyone's kind of up to their self tape game or just started thinking taking taking them more seriously you know before i think making a self tape was Not that it wasn't important, not that it wasn't serious, but it is our lifeline right now, you know, making that tape and, you know, sometimes clicking send to your agent, you know, and off to the, it just feels like it's going off to a a void sometimes. Um, So it, it has like a little bit of a different emotional attachment, I think, than, you know, being in the room with a casting director and a director, which I think we are all, you know, wanting again, you know, what is, is if, if so, what is occurring to you about Self tapes lately. Maybe I imagine you're watching more of them than you ever thought you would be watching. (laughs) Is there anything that you're like, this has really been occurring to me about actors and self tapes, or this is what I've been thinking about, or, you know, um, I wish actors stopped doing X or were doing Y or just kind of anything that kind of pops into your head?
1: Yeah. I I mean, look, it has not been ideal. Nobody wants to sit behind a computer and watch hours and hours of self tapes as opposed to being in the room seeing people nobody it's it's the same for us as it is for actors i promise we don't we don't want that to become a norm either yeah i I guess what i would say overall is we were put in a position or i shouldn't say we actors were put in a position where all of a sudden not only did they have to still worry about their craft they had to be a sound designer a lighting designer an editor a costume and makeup pro all of the you basically had to be a one person walking short film expert in order to put together a self-tape that you were proud of and i guess the one thing that shocks me now a year later is how incredibly good people have gotten at putting these tapes together and it's it it makes me sort of hesitate in one sense because i never want people going out and spending exorbitant amounts of cash on things that they don't necessarily need in terms of equipment but there's been people who have found ways to with a phone, a cheap ring light and a ironed out sheet put together tapes that are studio quality. Mm -hmm. And, And at the same time, what I have loved is that every creative team I have worked with, which hasn't been many during the pandemic, but every single team is so understanding of the situation we're in that nobody is expecting you to give a tape that looks like you're in a studio test. They're wanting you to do your best. They're completely understanding that it's Going to be a different circumstance for everybody in terms of what the setup is, but they have been so unbelievably understanding, and that makes me feel so good. So that that pressure is taken off actors to to think they have to be perfectionists. They don't. But I will say the tapes that I am receiving now, again a year later, are they're so professional, and it's it. Incredible that people have the brain to pivot like that and to watch their friends' tapes and take little tips from it and to watch these YouTube clips like Dan Tracy has of how you put together a perfect self-tape and really focus on the details of it. It's become an art, and it's become an art that actors are doing so well now. And I I can't stress enough how I hope that they hang on to that because that's obviously going to be a skill that comes into play whether they're doing film and TV stuff in the future or theater stuff that might just still have a self-tape component to it.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's totally become a new world and we are, um, you know, it's, it's not surprising to me that actors are like kind of, you know, putting their energy into, into this because it's like, well, they need, you know, they need to put it in somewhere. And, you know, it almost seems interesting that you're putting so much energy or I'm doing it too, into the lighting, into the background, into the camera, so that that all kind of fades away. And you're not thinking about all those things. And you're really just thinking about, the actor being authentic or, you know, the choices, you know, and if they're right for the role, you said you're working on like a a film right now. Are you able to like talk about it a little
1: bit? Yeah. A couple of us in in our office are working on a film called better Nate than ever by Tim Fetterly based on his books, which is so heartwarming and incredible. It's going to be for Disney plus.
0: Oh, cool. Cool. So for a project like that, for an example, how many, and I know it it totally varies, but maybe you can give me like a range. How many tapes do you end up taking from the ones you get back from agents and maybe self-submits? And how many do you whittle it down to, to then send off to the producers, the director, the showrunner, the creative team? And then are you ever surprised or are there any themes or anything about who they end up sending back as their choice? You know, like, are you are you, for the most part, like, oh yeah, that makes sense or oh, they're always going for this kind of thing, or or just anything that you can kind of categorize as to A, sorry, to, re- to summarize, the number of tapes, and then the one that ends up actually getting selected. It just, just is always interesting to me.
1: Yeah, I think in terms of the number of tapes, there's never a set formula of X amount is what we're going to send, because at the end of the day, if it's a good tape, we're going to send it through. So if there's 15 people submitting for a role and 15 tapes are great, it doesn't do us any good if we don't send all 15 and and luckily we have a team right now that's very open to that cool um i think obviously there's going to be times where there's just something that doesn't work about that audition or there's just a choice that's not necessarily in line with what that team sees but even if it's something that's on the fence i personally would rather send that and say uh, you know, I think this is something that might work, but based on the choice, I don't know if it's not gonna live in the world that you see yourself putting together for this scene. Hmm. Uh, so it's there's never a set number. I think sometimes if you are with a team that says, "You know, I only want to see five roles for this, then you have to go through and whittle for whatever reason and do five. But I always push back and say, <laughs> i I have seven because I couldn't make up my mind, and there's two that were really good that I couldn't bear to not show you. right. Uh, and to the second part of the question, I think, what ends up making them selected, this is so clearly a taste business within those choices and within that, that there's always going to be something that makes that a really great self-tape pop. You know, for example, Tim Fetterly is watching 15 tapes and there's one that he just thinks is gold based on the the reaction that he's having to specific moments or to the choices that are being made or to the uh, chemistry that he thinks that that particular performance would have with someone else in that team. Mm. Then, that, Then that's what ends up making that person get an offer. And it's it's just so circumstantial and so different for every single project and every creative team that there's never going to be a roadmap for, if you do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, then you're absolutely gonna book the job. And I think that's what gives actors this incredible opportunity to really take chances. And mm-hmm. I've seen actors do that who have surprised me. There's, there's one particular actress that I've had uh, the fortune of seeing a couple self-tapes from in the pandemic and it is like a new person has been born during this time she is so comfortable in her own skin she is so willing to try things she gives a couple different takes and both are so good in very different ways and it just makes me want to see her more and more because i'm realizing that she's found out something about herself in this process that is only serving her craft better for other projects down the road
0: yeah yeah, you know, kind of in that vein, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine who is a successful television actor, and he was he was talking to me about creativity with self-tapes. You know, like you can do it in front of your blue background with your ring light and that's pretty standard. It's so all-encompassing and it's so circumstantial, but like do you get people that are like filming self-tapes on location or outside or and using more props? And if it's well done and appropriate, I guess how do you feel about that, and how do you think teams feel about that?
1: A lot of time we'll get some pretty specific uh, direction in terms of what they'd like to see. I, I I often just put if you can do a solid colored background, great. If not, no worries. Just make it work with what you have. I yeah. think don't get don't get too creative with it because we don't yeah. want the back we don't want the background to overshadow you. And mm-hmm. if you're if you're filming outside, especially if that's your only option for some reason i would just be really careful with framing with background with sound with all it just it adds so many different elements that you have to be careful of the wind the police sirens the animals all that uh but i think for the most part the simplicity of it is is the beauty of it in a lot of ways because we really do want you to be the one that stands out and not Mm -hmm. something particular and i think to get really specific with that question about props i i hear that question all the time should i use props should i not use props It's, if you are using a prop, if you're making a decision to use a prop and it's not necessarily listed in the script that you, or the audition uh, information that you have to, you need to have a really specific thought out reason as to why your body was telling you that you couldn't live without using that prop. I think a lot of it is becoming pedestrian. There's a lot of things that are happening that are just not necessary in terms of your performance and in terms of the livelihood of what's happening in that moment. Sure, if you're doing an entire scene on a self-tape on a cell phone, use use a cell phone. Fine. That's great. But if you have a scene where you're in the kitchen cooking dinner and suddenly there's a strainer, a rolling pin, a pot, steam, water appeal, or like you're just introducing stuff to introduce stuff. That's not serving anybody good. It makes it look like you're focusing so much on the extraneous stuff than the actual work at hand.
0: Yeah, that was, it's such a fine line, but that was, that was really well said and, and made a lot of sense to me. I always think about, you know, the prop and it's like, well, is it absolutely necessary? And is it going to be distracting? Cause you don't want them thinking, you know, put down that scarf, you know?
1: I will say, I have seen some specifically comedic actors, and I have to give a shout out to J. Elaine Marcos for this, because every time I've ever seen a self-tape from her, she finds a way to incorporate certain props that you forget about because she's so damn funny. But the afterthought of the prop and how she used it or didn't use it is so incredibly memorable that it, it sort of brings to life the larger picture of the audition. But again, that's an example where somebody was making sure it was not detracting from a choice they were making or making sure that they were not getting sucked out of the moment
0: yeah yeah totally i love that i mean that's the business right like learn the rules so that you can break them a right. little bit so so i want to jump back into kind of the um world before the pandemic slash in a year when everything is kind of back to normal and i just you know there's a lot of younger actors actors just coming out of school actors in school that listen to this. And and I certainly know when I was coming out of school, if they're doing their homework and they're like, you know, they know the Telsey office and, oh, Pat Goodwin. Oh, you know, a lot of the musicals he casts or the films or TV shows, you know, I just kind of vibe with. And I feel like I like that kind of work and I would be really right for it. And I would love to get in, you know, get in front of Pat, you know, I guess just Maybe how do you, and this is about your creative process a little bit too, but how do you find new actors? How do you, do you teach anywhere? Probably going to see shows. I mean, I'm sure it's a, a whole group of things, but I just wondered if maybe you could talk a little bit about about that. Oh my gosh, Robbie, that's such a
1: loaded question, <laughs> but I love it. It's a great question. It's helpful um, though it is no it is i guess there's one little part that i'll answer before i dive into the meat of your question there i think if you see a casting director that has a resume with several shows that resonate to an actor just remember that was a little bit of luck that we ended up getting that project and that it landed on our lap because Mm. there's certainly other projects out there that i didn't work on or that my office didn't work on that i would have loved to because I love the content and I could see certain people playing roles or be or auditioning for roles. So I don't think it's necessary to assume that we have a distinguished taste just based on those shows that we worked on because those were just shows that we were fortunate enough to get hired to work on. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. still make sure that you're doing the larger picture of the self-discovery of who you are and not worry so much about us. Now, if If there's an office that clearly works on an array of projects and and you really gravitate towards very specific ones that they're working on sure then you can approach the audition in a little bit of a nuanced way that you may not have but i think it's important just to say out loud that that shouldn't necessarily affect your own self-discovery and self-betterment process as a performer Mm. and in terms of seeking talent, sourcing talent outside of normal avenues. And uh, what I mean by normal avenues is, you know, agent submissions and EPAs and open calls and all that. I think it's twofold. I think I've always been somebody that finds myself getting lost on social media and YouTube and, and hash- looking up a lot of hashtags that might be so specific that it's not gonna lead me anywhere. And there's others that do. And I think that has been something that I owe to the younger generation before me, of the associates and the assistants at my office, who were really friggin' good at it and knew how to do grassroots searches in a way that made me realize that I I need to stay on my game by doing that. And now I have a whole system that I like to use when I have the time to do that. Hmm. But w- as we've learned through this past year, anybody that works in casting now has such a responsibility to crack open every other version of a pipeline that they didn't before. And I mean that in terms of racial justice, I mean that in terms of uh, really breaking down a system, especially in the Broadway world that is very white favoring and very uh, dated and frankly inappropriate in some ways. And I also think it's about education to go to your other point is, so many people don't even have the opportunity or the knowledge that they can be in this industry because no one's ever approached them. No one's ever told them it's a career. No one ever told them that it's an art can be not just a hobby, but something that you can really try to make a living from. Mm. And I think that's what made me always want to be a teacher on the side. I teach at Pace University, and uh, they've been going through a lot this year in terms of their own struggles. And I'm I'm hopeful that. The students and the administration and the faculty are going to find a way to not only unpack what has been wronged and find some accountability, but really find a way forward that's going to be uh, beneficial for the students at the end of the day, because they're the they're the client; they're the ones that are paying to go there. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I I love teaching there because it's it's always been something that I've wanted to do. If I didn't go into casting, I, I love education. I used to teach a lot of kids' classes when I was doing Annie, when I was doing some younger kids shows, and I, I loved it. The reason I sort of haven't done that over the years is just because of time and because of life and things stepping mm-hmm. in the way that just, you know, I, I, I don't think I could do every single thing that I was asked to do, even if I wanted to, just because I need to breathe sometimes. <laughs> but I, it, this is all to say. Everything is an opportunity to meet new talent if you're willing to do it and if the people on the other end of those classes are willing to take it seriously. And so I have been very fortunate to teach at a lot of universities on a one-off capacity, a lot of outside places. Uh, But what I'm trying to teach myself during this time is balance and that it's okay to say no, you don't have to do it every single time. And sometimes it's good to just say, "You know what? Maybe you should ask another person to do this. Here's a recommendation. Um, but again, it's it's always something that we want to do if we're in a moment where we can,
0: yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I love that. i love I love that you teach. It's an important part of what I think about this business. and And I think it's important to have people like you who are doing it and in the in the audition room every day, also, teaching—it's kind of the mission of the podcast. And those Pace kids are lucky to be able to have that exactly. real industry knowledge that is applicable. You know, sometimes we get out of school, and it's like they teach us in school how to do the job on the first day of rehearsal. But they, you know, sometimes you're not taught how to get the job. You know, exactly. So it's it's an important perspective to be
1: getting. And one of the most, I just will say, one of the most fascinating things about one of the classes that I taught a few years, uh, I started teaching there in 2015, and they asked me to teach the business of the entertainment industry. And the first question that I asked the performers in the class was, who here knows how to do their taxes? Not one person raised their hand. And that to me was like, okay, now I need to take what I know from the performing side, merge it with the business side, and do anything I can to try to help these young people in life and in art. At the same time, and then that led to me creating the casting course there and all that. But yes, that's why I got into it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just have one more question for you, and it's 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 something that I ask most guests, but I just love to hear the answers. But and and it's kind of a you know whatever it elicits for you, basically. There's no there's no wrong answer, but you know when you you mentioned starting off in this business and you were Bernie's assistant and you know bring if you could bring yourself kind of back to that time back to when you were really just starting when you were really just learning and starting out and everything and it can be about casting because there's a lot of younger casting directors that are listening aspiring people that want to work in the business in that capacity but what do you wish you knew about the business it can be about anything that you that you know now or something that maybe would have made it not a little easier, but just would have maybe reframed your perspective on our industry or jobs or the way casting is. It can be about the audition room, just kind of anything that you think, oh, this is something that I either learned the hard way or learned along the way that I think is important for maybe the younger generation to know, but would have been nice for me to know when I was you know, a younger casting director.
1: Absolutely. It would have to be don't rush. I think I spent so much of my 20s Thinking about what the next step should be, how much more money I should be making, what I wanted my next challenge to be, who I was putting a timeline on wanting to work with. I look back at like 21, I remember this so clearly. I had a acting teacher when I was in my senior year of college say, I want you to write a list of goals that you want to have accomplished by the time you're 30 years old. And I want you to put it away and I want you to not look at it. And I like wrote it and whatever. I remember at 30 years old, I found it when I was moving wow. and, and I opened it and it was so unbelievably unrealistic that, and, and not just in terms of career, in terms of life. Like I had on there that I wanted to be married with two kids and own a house. And, and that all of that was so important that I couldn't see my life living worth being lived if I didn't accomplish that. And that I wanted to have, you know, uh, two Broadway shows under my belt as a performer and all these things. I just, I had such a moment in when I found that going, why did I spend so much time in my late teens and in my twenties rushing to try to get the next thing and to try to meet goals that weren't really goals. And so the, Biggest piece of advice that I could give is, as long as you're putting in the hours, as long as you're working to better yourself, to learn what you don't know, to listen to ideas that you don't necessarily think you agree with and hear another side, as long as you're doing all that, it's a little bit of luck, a little bit of timing, and a little bit of networking that will get you to where you need to go. I don't think I would have stayed in this career if I hadn't found that letter when I was 30. I don't, I really don't. I think I would have burned out in the past seven years. Spoiler alert, I'm 37. I think I would have burned out and I wouldn't have been able to, to be happy.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, that I take that advice so much because I, I am one of those people that also is just trying to push forward. And so many of us in this business are type A and very, you know, goal oriented. Um, but, you know, this pandemic for me has been exactly learning that lesson. It's been like, you know what, like the things, the goals that I wanted to accomplish I can't do right now. Do you know? So what can I do? And like you said earlier, balance is something that, you know, I've been practicing and talking to a lot of friends in the business and we're learning how to be patient, which is something that I think a lot of us really weren't able to do, but there is something about, you know, well, no one else is working on Broadway right now, so I can relax a little bit.
1: And Right. Right. That competition's not there. Right, 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 right.
0: So, but now I'm watching television and I'm like, "Oh, that person got the job." <laughs> right. Um anyway, but yes, yeah, so well said. It's so important and um and an important lesson to be practicing during this time because there's, you know, for many of us not a whole lot to do, but but you know, keep breathing and be patient and um, you know, get our ring lights perfectly set up. So, <laughs> Pat, I am so grateful for this chat. It went by so fast, but it was just so helpful. You know, I think we have this idea of the business or at the end of the day, it's an aesthetic thing and you just show up and be your best and do your best. But there is something about knowing, you know, where you fit into the piece of the puzzle and this greater, you know, the full picture of the puzzle, you know, like kind of what's your role that really I think can help us um, both performing, but also just kind of in life, being able to relax and let things go. So I appreciate you um, speaking so eloquently and clearly about
1: uh, about everything that you do. So well, you, I, I don't know if I deserve that praise, but thank you. you I'm did. really the you one do. that's lucky to be here today.
0: You do. Well, thank you, Pat. I really appreciate it. For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit TheBreakdownPodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Facebook and Instagram at The Breakdown with Robbie. And again, if you like what you heard, help spread the word. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for another episode of The Breakdown. Ah!